Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. The Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast is starting 2021 hopeful and optimistic. The first four episodes will feature four men, three artists and one collector, who were all previously incarcerated. These men should be acknowledged for their ability to thrive and persevere despite being incarcerated. In this episode, I feature art collector Frederick Hudson. Frederick grew up in Brooklyn, New York and St. Petersburg, Florida with his single mother and three siblings. After high school, he joined the Air Force and during that time, he launched and ran several businesses. In 2005, after an honorable discharge, he turned his business efforts to selling and sending marijuana through the parcel companies. He was eventually arrested by the DEA and served a 51-month sentence in 2007. He was 23 years old. During his nearly five-year stay in prison, being a gifted thinker and astute entrepreneur, the idea of building a technology solution that would allow inmates to better connect with family and friends and disrupt the $4 billion predatory prison services industry was born. Frederick founded Pigeonly, one of the largest independent inmate services providers in the country. As a result of his success and his interest in the visual arts, he has built an impressive art collection that includes work by Nathaniel Mary Quinn, Shabalala Self, and Derek Adams, to name a few. I am delighted to share his voice with you he is an impressive young businessman. Welcome to the Sweet Woman Art Talks podcast and enjoy Frederick Hudson. Welcome, Frederick, to my Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I appreciate your time, your past, present, and future. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let's just start off saying, um, as a collector, as a new collector, um, when did you discover your interest in the visual arts? Sure. So um, a little bit of background about myself. Um, I, I started a technology company about seven years ago, and um, the company was born out of my personal experience. I served close to five years in federal prison for distribution of marijuana. And it was just during that time that I realized that there was this pretty large population of people that no one's paying attention to. and We all had the same problem. It was always very difficult and expensive for us to stay connected um, with our support network of family and friends. And that led me to build, you know, what my company is, which is a platform that makes it easy for people to search, find, and connect with an incarcerated loved one. Um, so, you know, fast forward to today, you know, we've built um, 
um, a good sized company. We have, you know, around 40 employees here in the States and around 20 overseas. Um, and over, over that time, you know, as, as I started to, you know, meet new people, get exposed to new things, one of the transitional points for me as far as art collecting came about <laughs> when I moved into my first place. Um, shortly after, you know, getting my place all designed and, and getting all the furniture in, and it was about a six month process. It, it got to the walls, which were all bare. And, you know, my interior designer said, Hey, you know, um, you should really, you know, get some art for the walls. And I said, well, you know, you've been helping me pick everything else. Just go ahead and pick out some, just pick some stuff out for me. And then she started laughing. I was like, Oh no, 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 no. You can't do that. It's, it's, it's very personal. You need to really be involved and do that yourself. That's okay. And that's really how it started. So I went online and I didn't know where to find art. I didn't know anything. I didn't know the difference between buying art from a gallery or buying it directly from an artist or an auction or a website. To me, it was all the same. And I just went online and started Googling and just stuff started coming up. And I just got hooked on looking at art on different websites and, and different profiles. And that's, you know, where my journey began. That's wonderful. And how, how long ago was this? This was back in 2015, yeah, around 2014, 2015. And do you mind if I ask uh, for you to share with us some of the artists you've collected? Sure. So, um, so far today, um, I have uh, some of my favorite works um, include works by Derek Adams, um, Nathaniel Mary Quinn, Shabbos um, Self, Cleon Peterson, I have, I'm expecting a work soon from Vaughn Spann. Those, those are a few that pop up at the top of my head are some of my favorites that, that I probably look at and spend the most time with. Have you met the artists? Yeah, I try to do that when if all possible. One, 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 one of the things that I do and, and one thing that art collecting has also done for me is it's been my excuse to travel the world. And um, I've, I, I am very happy to you know, use uh, um, an exposition as an excuse for me to pick up and go to um, London or pick up and go to Brussels or pick up to go to anywhere as far as Tokyo. I mean, the, um, I met Vaughn, I want to say it was either our first meeting or our second. And I think it was our second meeting at his show in Tokyo. Where I just popped up. He wasn't expecting me to be there. Um, and I just popped up and just enjoyed the show with him on the opening. So, it's it's definitely been part of my part of my practice and part of my strategy to meet and develop an authentic relationship with the artist. Um, because you know, in the contemporary art world, you know, as I learned the hard way, by the time in most cases, if it's an hot artist, by the time you go to a show, everything's already spoken for. The gallery's taking care of their long their long um, standing clients um, and or placing works early works with institutions. So as a new collector, as someone that doesn't have very strong ties or relationships in the art world, coming in as a newcomer, it's very, very, very difficult to get access. It's extremely hard to get access, actually. And that paralleled a lot to what I was used to in the business world. And the same thing is true when it comes to venture capital and raising money for a business and things like that. Unless you have access, unless you are part of a network, it is very difficult to be an outsider to be able to get that inside track and to be able to get access to the people who will be most supportive of whatever it is that you're doing. What were some of the challenges that you encountered when raising money to, uh, for your app, for Pigeony? Yeah, so in the, in the first, you know, as, as, as a black man, as someone that has a felony background, 
I just didn't fit the mold of what most technology investors were used to investing in. I just, I just, I just didn't look like their typical, um, the typical founder that they would back. And, um, and this was, this was back in 2013. Now things are definitely changing now. Um, and things are a lot different. There's a lot more founders of color today than it was then. Um, but even overall, the, the numbers are still significantly low. I mean, founders of color that raise venture capital is, it's like less than 1%. So it's extremely small. Um, so when you, when you look at that, it just really, it, it reflects what we see in just pretty much in every other industry and every, in every other aspect of life. When, you know, as a black person, you know, you're, you're in most cases, you, you, you are the exception to the rule. You have to be the exception to the rule because it's just typically, you know, you typically most areas of our life, it's just not inclusive. That's just the reality of it. As much as we would like it to be, it's just not. So, um, you know, some of the challenges were just really one, helping people understand the problem that I was solving and helping people understand why it was important to back what I was doing. Um, and that just took a lot of education. I had to, I couldn't just walk in a room and say, Hey, this is what I'm building. And this is why it's important. I had to really spend time to educate folks and saying, Hey, you don't understand what prison communication is like. You don't understand the problems that exist. You don't understand how predatory this industry is because you haven't experienced it and no one that you know has experienced it. However, there's an entire population, a segment of the population that this is a part of their everyday life. You know, it's a proven fact that that minorities are incarcerated at a higher rate, even though the, the, the levels of crime that are committed is the same rate as, as their white counterparts. And then it's also a proven fact that, that sentences, prison sentences are significantly long, longer for people who come from minority backgrounds than their white counterparts. So again, this is something that's systematic in our society. Um, and you know, it's not no one person or one program, one app or one idea that's gonna change it. Um, but it took that level of education um, of me being able to educate people in the room and saying, hey, this is the problem. This is what makes me credible in solving that problem because I personally experienced that, you know, me obviously embracing my own personal experience and my own background, regardless of how they would think about it. Um, and this is why I'm the right person to solve it. And, and I think once I got comfortable in owning that, um, it, really, it really changed the tone um, of going through that process of raising capital for our business. So far, we've raised it over $10 million. Um, to build our business to date. Um, and, you know, it just really changes your mindset because, you know, raising capital, you're not, you're not, this is not a fundraiser. This is not a donation, right? right? You're investing in a business because you're expecting some sort of return. Um, so this is a business transaction and it's allowing people to understand that. Um, and then mostly it's the founder that just has to get comfortable with that because it's sometimes it's very hard asking for something, right? Um, but, but, you know, when you change the dynamics a little bit, you look at it, you know, as, as a business transaction, it's not a handout or a donation, you're giving someone the opportunity to be a part of something value that you are going to create, then it allows you to have the level of confidence that's necessary to successfully, you know, raise capital. I'm going to circle back to um, return on investment in a minute. But before I do that, can you share with us some aspects of uh, Pigeonly, like what the what it offers those that are incarcerated? Sure. So in, in a sentence, what our platform does is allows people to search, find, and connect with one of their incarcerated loved ones. And it can do so using our products that fit into three core categories. The first is our telephone service, which is probably one of our most popular services that allows people to um, receive low-cost prison phone calls. And then the second is our financial services product, which is very similar to a Venmo, a Cash App, a PayPal, just creates a very frictionless way and easy way for people to send money. 
to the incarcerated level, whether they want to put money on their commissary account or books and lower the fees. And then finally, we have our postal mail services products, which allow people to do things like send greeting cards, postcards, letters, photos, et cetera, directly from their cell phone, tablet, or computer. Um, and then this just makes it a lot more convenient, allows them to bypass having to go to the post office or having to print and handwrite stuff out themselves. And just speeds up that, 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 that process and allows all of us who are so used to living in this digital world that we live in communicate with a population of people that are mostly in an analog world still. So, um, you know, we, we, our, our platform acts as that bridge. Um, and then the benefit to the institution is on the institution side, it provides them a way to allow, you know, the MA population to be able to have access, still have open access to mail without having to be concerned or worried about contraband coming in. Because, you know, one thing that most people are not always aware of is that postal mail is one of the most commonly used forms of introducing contraband. Contraband, you know, could be illicit drugs and other substances that could be harmful to staff and the population and the MA population you know, introducing contraband into the facility. So um, it's a two-prong approach and, a two, and it benefits both sides. Um, but again, that's where we're at today. When you're starting the company, it's not as thought out and nicely buttoned up as I just described it. It's really a learning process of figuring out, you know, where are you going to build value? What does the customer want? Um, and what, what is most effective um, and best way to deliver that solution to the problem? It's so smart. It also has a philanthropic component to it. So. Yeah. So, and then one, one of the things that's, you know, unique with our company is that, you know, we have two types of investors. We have investors that are traditional technology-based investors. And then we also have our impact investors. And our impact investors are attracted to our solution because, you know, one of the things that there's a lot of research that supports is that the more you're able to keep someone who's incarcerated connected with their support network of family and friends, the less likely they are to reoffend. Re so, um, you know, to be to be very precise, the two um, the two factors that impact recidivism the most is one communication and two is education. Those two things. And when you think about it, you know, it, it really makes sense. You know, the more I can maintain these social ties, and when I'm released, and I need that couch to sleep on as I'm trying to get my life back together or I need to stay in touch with my high school friend who might know of a, of a place where, you know, that I can apply for work or just those relationships is really, you really need that support network to really rebuild your life. And if all those relationships are destroyed and alienated time away, um, it's very, 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 that much more difficult to rebuild your life once you're released. So, you know, from a common sense perspective, it really does make sense, which shows how counterintuitive the system is currently because it currently is set up in a way that makes communication very difficult and the barriers are very extremely high for most people. At what point did it cross your mind that this type of tool would be something you should create? I think um, uh, it really was my personal experience. Like this really started out just scratching my own itch. I mean, I just understood, you know, very clearly you know, how important it was to hear my name at mail call. I understood, you know, how important it was for my mental health to be able to stay in touch with my family and not also be that financial burden on my family. I knew that, you know, it's very hard for someone to, you know, maintain, you know, financially paying $15 um, a minute, $15 for a 15 million minute phone call. That gets really expensive really fast when you're talking about, you know, staying in touch throughout the month. So, it's because I understood that so well and I noticed that same issue around me. And then I just observed 
the folks that had the financial means to stay in touch and a financial means to get visits and keep those family ties, those are the folks that I didn't see come back even while I was there. And then for the people who really was most isolated, those are the folks I would come back time and time again but once they were released, even during the short time I was there. So I, I just I just unknowingly observed, you know, what I later found out to be backed up by, you know, 40 plus years of research. Well, you're very, uh, you're obviously you're very intelligent, smart and observant. And thank you for, for, for what you do. So let's get back on the subject of return on investment. Mm-hmm. When you collect, do you have that in mind? Um, so I think when, when I, this, there's a couple of things that, that I look for um, when I collect. I think what I've tried to do more recently, and this is, this is kind of evolved um, over the years, um, but what I try to do currently is I'm trying to basically capture a snapshot in the moment of time in my particular life, in my generation. And when I look back, um, you know, before I move on to whatever this next life holds, I want to be able to have my collection speak to a moment of time in my generation um, of all the different things that were culturally relevant and all the things that were going on. Um, and, you know, whether it's, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, whether it's the issues we're having with the police, whether it's, you know, what's going on politically, whatever's going on socially, that, that's really been my intent. And it just so happened that some of the best artists that are doing it are also some of the artists that are just, you know, in the most top demand, right? So this is, this is where, where those two things meet. So inadvertently of doing that, you're also getting artists that are really sound, um, sound investment pieces for your collection. Um, and in a lot of ways, when people think about um, investment, pieces of investment work, they automatically think um, that uh, it's something that you, that, you, that you buy in order to flip or sell. And you know, from my perspective, coming from a business background, having assets and having investment pieces, it can be leveraged a lot more ways than just flipping and selling, right? So I think, I think you know, from my perspective, you know, it's important to have both. Um, I think it's important to, at least for me, because art is really what, what I invest a lot of my resources into, and it is for me um, an investment. Um, I also look at that as the return on that investment Maybe from a cultural standpoint, that if I'm able to have a strong enough collection that I can then open up in the, in the future to the public, um, similar to like a Rubel Museum type situation, then to me, then I'm getting that return on investment. So it's not always that financial return that I'm looking for. Um, it's sometimes just that general purpose and, you know, being able to capture this very unique moment in my generation, in my time. Um, that is going to be more so relevant and more so impactful in the future. You're consistent, you giver. Regarding the artist narrative, when you see a work that you like, how important is the narrative? I mean, what comes first, the narrative or the aesthetic or the, the beauty in the work? For me, it's the narrative, I'll be honest. Like, um, because I see a lot of beautiful works all the time that I don't move forward with. Um, I think for me, I like work that the narrative is really pushing the boundaries of, of reality, whether it be on society or cultural norms. Um, and, 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 I, and I think, you know, sometimes I shy away from works that just have too much commercial appeal. I, I, I like, I like uh, stuff that really has a very strong narrative and resonates with, you know, what I'm thinking or feeling 
um, you know, at, at that moment. Um, and, and again, this, it's, it's a moving target because it does change from, from time to time, but I tend to gravitate to pieces that stimulate thought and conversation and really just convey some sort of emotion. I want to feel something when I look at it. Um, and what I'm less concerned about is, okay, this is beautiful. Or this is pretty. Like, you know, I, I want to feel something um, when I look at a work and, you know, my collection might not be for everybody. Right. So, because I'm really trying to capture very unique moments, you know, within my life with the works that I pick. As it pertains to abstract art, I struggle with understanding a narrative or the message in abstract because, you know, my brain is too black and white. But do you own mainly figurative work or is it the balance of both? Right now, I would say 100% of my work is all figurative. Um, and now, though, thanks to Vaughn, I am now open to abstract. Before, I wasn't really open to it. And Vaughn, meaning Vaughn's fan, because he bounces back and forth between figurative and abstract. Looking because I, you know, I like him as an individual. I understand, you know, you understand his background and, you know, um, and I'm getting to see his, get to see what he's doing with the abstract work. It's starting to help train my eye to really look at abstract work in a different light. Um, so, yes, I, my plans for this year coming up um, is to really look more at abstract work so I can have that balanced approach in my collection of both. And, and, and actually what I'm, what I'm seeing is particularly with Dan's stuff, Vaughn's stuff is that the abstract works can be, you know, a lot more intense and it could require a lot more focus. Um, and, uh, it'd be a lot more complex than just looking at a figure and you can, you know, exactly what's happening on in the story. Um, with abstract, it's a lot more about the emotion and what the artist was feeling and what he was trying to convey, he or she was trying to convey. And it's just so much more into it. Um, and, and there's something about it that is very unique, um, that, that I don't know that figurative would ever be able to, to convey. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm learning myself. It's a little bit of a struggle for me, but I'm, I'm learning. It is. Yes. hundred percent. I totally agree. <laughs> I'm warming up to it. I'm definitely warming up. And, and you would, would, like I said, what got me there is cause I, I couldn't go directly straight to just artists that only did abstract. What got me there was being a fan of Bond's work. And then seeing the transition and him bouncing back before the, be, between the two. And that actually started to help me to get it. How, how important is it that you like the personality of the artist? Yeah, I, I, think, I think personally, just because I, I, I collect at a level when most artists are early, I definitely tend to gravitate to artists that um, we can find something in common, whether it's you know, we're both black or whether it's we both come from similar upbringings or similar backgrounds or have had similar, have been exposed, you know, culturally to similar things. Um, I think that that just makes it easier, um, at least for me um, in the beginning. But I also have 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 acquired artists that I don't necessarily like personally, but or maybe not even like that. I don't understand personally on a personal level, but I still like their work. Um, and I've experienced that as well, probably not as much. Um, but, you know, I also am not mad at the fact that I'm not going to understand everyone and I don't necessarily want, want my collection to be monolithic. I, I, I do want some diversity. I do want all different types and, and shapes. And, you know, one artist that, that, that comes to mind is Alice Gardner. I really love Alice Gardner's work. Um, and 
but we're very different. We're nothing alike, right? <laughs> so, you know, we, we have very little in common um, besides, you know, the, the melanin in our skin is the only thing we probably have in common. But I really like his work. And he's definitely a great guy. He's a dope person. But, you know, it, it, he's, he's just different. He's just very different. So, and, and I respect him for that. And, and I appreciate that. Um, so, you know, when I see his works, you know, it speaks to that for me. I'm fascinated by artists. I love them. They're all different. Some of them are very weird, Um, but you know, it makes them very interesting. Uh, So do you hang art throughout your house? Do you have some work in bedroom, bathroom, kitchen? I literally have no more wall space. Like it's literally (laughs) everywhere. Like as soon as you walk in, you're looking, Derek Adams is staring you right in the eye. You turn to your left, you're looking at Nathaniel. And it's just, it's just literally everywhere. (laughs) I'm running out of space. It's to the point now where I'm just rotating stuff at this point. Yeah. You know, I, I hate the idea of putting anything in storage. So, yeah, I have it everywhere in my house. Um, <laughs> but this has been a great conversation and it go, could go on and on. But this is going to be our last question. And um, okay. it is, what do you feel is the purpose of art? Hmm. I think I think art is really... Um, one, one, there's, a, there's a quote that I heard Nathaniel say that really um, stood out to me. He said that creating art is the process of, of fixing problems that we create for ourselves. And it, it's something that just always resonated with me because when, when I think about art and when I think about my collection and when I think about, you know, my life living with it, it's really just a process. And for me, at least what it does for me, it always just, is a constant visual cue as I'm guiding through life to keep me off the rails and try to keep me in the center of the road. And that's what it does for me. And I think we sometimes don't, I think we sometimes don't appreciate how much, how important visual cues are or, or just cues in general as you're, as you're going through your life, how much it can help you to write down your intentions for the week or write down your intentions for the day or have a goal, have a plan. Um, I, I think, I think we sometimes don't give that enough credit of, of how impactful that can be in our lives to be super intentional. And I think when you go through the process of intentionally selecting something that speaks to you in a very strong way to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars into it, or thousands of dollars into it, or hundreds of dollars into it, whatever your price, price point is. Um, I think that those things always kind of brings you back and centered in, in, in your life at any given moment. Um, because it'll always bring you back to that moment when you made that decision or bring you back to that moment when it spoke to you at whatever level it spoke to you on. Um, and it, it just reminds you why you are where you are and, and, and reminds you of who you are and what's really important to you. Because I think outside of that, with the amount of distractions and all the things that's pulling our attention in so many different directions, at least for me, when I'm home, I want to be centered. I want to be grounded. And for some folks, it may be religion. For some folks, it, it may be, you know, the art that they see. For some folks, it, it could be family. For me, it's a combination of all those things because all those threads tie into the decisions that I make um, when, I'm, when I'm selecting, you know, art that I want to invest in and art that I want to collect. Um, they all, all those threads tie into all of that. I agree with everything you said. Um, it's important for us to have art in our life. And I very much appreciate it. And I very much appreciate your time thanking you for... Um, let me feature you on the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Thank you for having me. Take care. Thank you. Take care. 
Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.